when you talk to Microsoft people, they're not, I mean, they're like, cool, code is cool, but you know what else is cool? The Federal Reserve and also how we might factor that into our ad op strategy. And you're like, oh, that, or, you know, like clouds, you know, seven. Like, what if we created a new kind of sand? Nothing's more important than a great customer experience, but sometimes services get disrupted. XMatters helps teams resolve issues fast before they impact customers. Learn why millions trust XMatters to keep their digital services up and running at xmatters.com slash stack. All right, Paul, we're going to settle this once and for all. It is Dino. Got it? I will accept nothing else. It's it's Dino, the little guy. It's got a little icon or a logo that is a dinosaur. It's Dino. That's yeah, Dino the Dino. Or it's Dino the Dino. It could Wait, guys, be. I've got it. I've, I can fix this for you. I've invited someone on the show today that can solve this for us. Brian, you commit to Dino. Oh, or goodness. Dino, can you help us? I don't know either. So <laughs> uh, I'm going to go with, I've heard both. I kind of like Dino. Sounds I like a Dino more cute. too. Well, Dino yeah. is very like, that was Dean Martin's nickname and, you know, and just kind of cool yeah. 50s vibe. Dino the Dino. Yeah, was, was it Hiroko? JavaScript. Well, who had dinos? Did Hiroko have dinos you could add? They did, yeah. Yeah, because I always just think, like, add more dinos. Right. <laughs> All right, there was a point in startup culture where that was always the answer. Yeah. <laughs> You're just going to need more dinos at $700 an hour. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. But we've all heard it both ways, I guess, is the issue. Even from people who are building it, they kind of use it interchangeably, Brian. Yeah, the committers don't seem to have consensus on this. Maybe they're changing it in real time from customer <laughs> feedback. I, I, don't, I don't really know. I mean, I think it's an anagram of the name Node, but no one's even really said where the name mm. came from. Why yet, didn't I so. notice that? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's got the same letters. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think what you do, I mean, if you look at it, like... It, GIF, GIF, it works itself out. <laughs> yeah, Nobody exactly. even talks about that anymore. There's tomato, a solid tomato, answer tomato, for that now. Dino. Yeah, no, for, for whatever mm. reason, engineering culture is very accepting of a consensus that emerges, and they lock in and they just go no with it, argues. which is why, that's right, why why Jiffy just sold to Fastbook for $400 million. <laughs> Fetché book. <laughs> Brian, maybe you can introduce yourself. Can you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? Sure. Yeah. My name is Brian LaRue. I am a software developer, a very webby software developer. I'm the CTO at Begin.com, which sounds really fancy, but there's really only five of us. We're a tiny startup. And we do CICD for AWS Lambda. In the last year, I've got really excited about the alternate runtimes for Lambda, things that you could like build for yourself. And that kind of led me on one of those weird programmer journeys where you think you're fixing one thing and you end up fixing four or five other things. And then I ended up building a Deno runtime for Lambda and got hooked. And this is my fate. I adopt things really early and cut my fingers off and then open source it and maybe it sticks. Yeah, let's briefly unpack the 7,000 acronyms. Uh, yeah, Brian, I'm the beginner here, so walk me back through CIC. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, no, don't, don't apologize. Continuous integration, continuous delivery. God knows we all need a good definition of those. So you're, you're living it. What are those things? So, yeah, and please stop me when I do this because I, I hate acronym soup and I hate jargony stuff. This is a, a Oh big... no, we're all in this world yeah. together. Man. Yeah. <laughs> Just don't worry. I want to be, 
I want to be as clear as I can generally. So continuous integration, the idea is you're committing to the master trunk all the time. Instead of doing branch-based development, we're all on the same journey to get uh, value to the customer as quick as possible. And the best way to do that is have a short lead time to your, your master branch. And so that's continuously integrating with your, your trunk, as it were. Sometimes people call it trunk-based development. There's a super related concept, and that's why they're always joined together of continuous delivery or continuous deployment, but they're not quite the same thing. So committing to master all the time, good practice, we want to do that. And then deploying to the customer all the time is the other practice that we want to make sure that we're doing all the time. And so they're subtly different. Committing to master probably doesn't go straight to the customer. It probably goes through some kind of staging environment and or QA environment. And the idea with continuous delivery is that you're always getting that value to the customer as quick as possible. So that's not a technology so much as a philosophy. That's how I interpret it. So and develop what that means is developers can't go away for a month to add the the new big red button yeah. and come back, right? Like that's not that's not the new way. The new way is like get your red button in there, get it into the master branch, get it out to the customer. Okay, now just quickly for the world, you know, to me, let me let me try to explain Lambda and you tell me if I'm how badly I'm screwing up. <laughs> Lambda is a way to run stuff in the cloud without thinking about the computer underneath. Just functions. You put a th you put a little bit of code up there and now you have a web service which, you know, we think of as like REST APIs, but it's a little different where you just literally go, hey, Lambda, I got the I got that data you like, and it goes, let me let me chew that data up and give it back to you. And there's kind of, and this is where it gets fuzzy, not a lot in the middle. Like it's not, it can call other services and do other things, but the the goal of it is like, here's a function in the cloud that adds two numbers, processes something, and it can run a trillion times or five times. And as long as you have, you know, 45 minutes for it to start up, everything <laughs> is great. Yeah. So that's that's roughly true. I think... There's, so there's a few forces at play. So the Lambda thing is kind of just a, a result of economics. So over time, things commodify and they get cheaper and they get faster. And compute's no different. So we started off with these big fat servers that we'd put into like, you know, racks. And then eventually we realized that that's really expensive. So we started renting those and renting the space of those. And then eventually AWS, you know, Jeff Bezos being the guy he is, your margin's my opportunity, thought, well, what if we charged per 100 milliseconds and had an on-demand model? And what would be the perfect construct for an on-demand model when you abandon the metaphor of a server? And a function seemed like a good idea. And the initial implementation of this stuff was, you know, with S3 and more for like things like thumbnailing. It was completely driven by customer requests for that type of thing. And then when they had this event-driven function primitive laying around, they started wiring it up to other stuff, things like a simple notification service or database rights to DynamoDB. And this huge ecosystem just blossomed out of this primitive because it's such a small building block. And eventually mm -hmm. they added other runtimes. So now you can program Lambda functions with pretty much any runtime you want. And uh, yeah, economics prevailed. So it did have bad cold start characteristics. When it first got going, it was multiple seconds to warm up, but we're down into the 100 millisecond range now for cold start, sometimes even less, depending on what runtime you're using. And we, when we started, we only had three seconds of processing time, but we're up to 15 minutes now. So these things get faster, they get cheaper, and they can execute longer with time. Pitch your company for a minute. What is a problem you solve for me? 
you want to take advantage of this new primitive and these new capabilities kind of unleashed by Amazon, but you do not want to eat that elephant whole. So you look at Amazon and you think, wow, that's a lot. Where do I get started? How do I tackle this beast? And uh, begin.com just gives you a really easy on-ramp. And we don't lock you in. We just use standard cloud formation. So if you want to bail, you can leave any time. And uh, we're based on open source software. So you can audit us yourself. That's great. And so how did you get involved in the world of Deno or Dino? Dino. Dino? Yeah, Dino, Dino. Uh, yeah, so when we were building out Begin, we started getting requests for alternate runtimes besides Node. Node's kind of like the early fast guy that everyone wanted to use uh, with Lambda functions. But once we started to get more adoption, we had people asking for Python and Ruby. And we started to investigate Lambda Layers, which is the ability to package your own stuff for the runtime. And the cold starts in these layers can be kind of bad, especially if they get bigger. And we were sort of exploring different runtime options to see what was out there. And I noticed that Deno, way back in October, posted, we're going to go 1.0 by December. And I thought, oh, I better get on this thing then. So I started playing with it, and it was very clear to me it was not going to be 1.0 by December, but I still liked it a lot. In particular, what I liked was the cold start characteristic. They've managed to just about double Node's cold start time. So it's it just starts faster, which was very compelling to me from a, a workload perspective. If you're marshalling JSON payloads with V8, you probably don't really care what the runtime is at, at scale. You just want to have that be you know maybe twice as fast or half the cost. So... We started to play with it pretty heavily, and turned out it didn't go 1.0 back in December. It went 1.0 a couple of weeks ago, so we had lots of time to get that right, and uh, we played with it a ton in the in the sort of prevailing time. And of course, as a pre 1.0 product, it had a lot of rough edges early on, but they've really tightened that up as they hit 1.0. Help us understand this community a little bit. So there, so Deno is a product of some of the people who were the, the earliest committers to Node. Yeah. So still the V8 JavaScript engine that Google produced for Chromium. So you've got Google. Google makes this super superstar JavaScript engine, and now it runs on the server, and now it kind of runs anywhere. It can run inside of Electron. It can run, you know, so it's, it's everywhere, and it's Node, and it has a billion packages, and we all either love it or accept it, depending on <laughs> where you are. And it yeah. runs on Lambda. So now we've got Dino, however you pronounce it. It's it, you'll just have to have a regular D expression yeah. with a lot of phonetic symbols in the middle. So what are some of the so you're you're looking around and you're thinking in economics. You're like, boy, wow, this is the thing that everybody already uses, and we can run a lot more of it a lot more quickly. That's good for my customers. Yeah, there. So there are those aspects. I think Ryan Dahl, the a uh, creator of Node does a good talk where he gets into some of his motivations for Deno. You know, he said he had ten things he regretted about Node.js, and I don't think these are like we all do. Frankly, <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Well, they're they're not admonishments so much as accidents of history. You know, this whole JavaScript thing wasn't even really in the plan. If you remember, you know, not even ten years it ago, truly wasn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Nobody was thinking that. Right? No, exactly. So when he created Node, there were still a lot of unanswered questions about how the language would mature, how things like package management would work in a dynamic runtime environment, and Node made choices. Not all of those choices were borne out by history, and Node also got mass adoption. You can't just break Node to add something. So they were sort of shackled to their past, and Deno is a clean break where I could experiment with the new language features that are out there. 
how does package management happen in Dino? Because I understand it's different and it's a little less decentralized or more decentralized. Could you talk through that a little bit? Yeah, it's so cool. So they basically work identically to the browser. You give it full URLs, full ES module URLs. Weirdly, you can also give it full URLs to TypeScript and TSX files. So, so React flavored TypeScript files. It'll load it, it'll cache it, and it'll link it, and it'll compile it for you all transparently. And you don't have to think about any node modules, folders, or anything like that. Now, this sounds epically dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe it is, but it's not really any different than how NPM works. It vendors files too, right, from the internet as well. And, yeah. you know, you have to be selective about which modules you bring in, even if it is NPM or Dino, Deno Dino. And you have a concept in, in Dino where you can set what's called a Dino Dir, so you can vendor those yourself in a local module if you want. Interestingly, another one of Ryan's statements of, or of regret was that he didn't add all the stuff to Node. Node was very thin and relied on its ecosystem for tooling. Dino has taken the exact opposite approach. It builds in a bundler and a formatter, a linter, and a tester. So mm -hmm. if you don't like those third-party modules possibly changing them to you, you can just bundle them into the function that you're using. Oh, my God. Uh, so many discussions that won't need to happen. That is oh, yeah. great. <laughs> yes. It's I mean, that, it feels like that's something that Go nailed, which is like for all the people complain about generics or whatever, like you never hear anybody going, uh, well, this is how you, you know, this is how Go needs to be linted. For people who don't know, like Go yes. has a lot of that built in. And it is, you just never see those complaints bubble up. The, yeah. the law of triviality. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a worthwhile look on Wikipedia, but this is a programmer's bane. So everyone would rather argue about the color of their IDE than talk about the hard problem that they're trying to solve. And so Dino forces you out of that problem because it tells you how to format your code. Go does this too. I think that's where the inspiration came from. Like the convention versus configuration arguing all over again. Yeah. And and should we be arguing about semicolons anymore? Like, have we had enough of that? <laughs> I don't know. Do we have better things to do yet? I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, you know, this will this will solve that problem finally, and engineers can just get to work <laughs> and on. do do better stuff and just stop all the bike shedding. Thankfully, we did it. It's done. It's over. <laughs> yeah, and I I like that. I think this is the pendulum kind of swinging in favor and out of favor. So you know, 20 years ago, it was very common to have a built-in runtime app server IDE, you know, all in mm -hmm. one vertically integrated environment. And after the Ruby revolution, we kind of eschewed that and went Unixy and you know compose your tools and and Node took that to the extreme and now we are seeing a, the pendulum swing back to a desire for integrated experiences. And I think it's just it's kind of the natural evolution of things and it's it's probably time. You know we've experimented with JavaScript quite a bit in the past decade and it, we could use some stability. <laughs> no, I think I mean to that end, right? Like TypeScript is built in here, which is just a very specific effort to bring that kind of, I'm going to use the word enterprise, but it's a little yeah. more broad than that, but like just actual stability to the language. Rigor, yeah. I think it's a very risky and interesting choice. I'm a fan, but TypeScript is not without its problems. So one problem is that there's no Semver versioning for TypeScript, so they just will change it. And so Deno is ostensibly going to inherit that, which could be interesting. The other thing about TypeScript is there's 31 configuration options when you compile it, which is a nice way of saying there's 960 possible 
module systems, depending on how you compile it. And uh, I don't know what that's going to do for interop. People can say that that's bad, but I'll just point at NPM and say, is that bad? Because it's the same thing. You know, there is a lot of diversity and in that diversity, there will be challenges in integrating. But yeah, it's got TypeScript. I mean, this is culture. <laughs> it's, it, it's culture. Yeah. Culture is a mess, right? Like yeah. It's, it's humans building things collectively with little coordination. Okay, so interesting. So you're so you see because I, I just sort of see TypeScript as like ah, developers love it. It yeah. helps them like think their thoughts, and it it does. There are aspects of that experience that are clearly really nice, where you just totally. you, you don't get into pickles you would otherwise get. But you see some longer term risks there. I do, and I like TypeScript too, and we're using it as well. So I'm not you know saying that this is a binary situation of good and bad. I just think there are definitely trade offs when you start walking along that path. They have abdicated JavaScript's most powerful feature, which is that it's backwards compatible. And right. but you don't need to write TypeScript. You can you can opt into it on a per file basis, and Deno just hides all that compilation. And you know I didn't want to like it. And I really do. So it's and definitely worth giving a the, chance. The most common experience, right? Yeah. Like everybody's like, "Oh no!" And it's from Microsoft, and and, and then yeah, looks looks kind of like Java, and some of us have those like you know bad experiences there. But yeah, I refactored a code base a little while, and it kept catching bugs and making the code better and annoying. Uh-huh. I kind of like this. Uh. Today's episode of the podcast is brought to you by Stack Overflow for Teams, the best way to organize and share knowledge across your company. It's used by small startups and some of the biggest companies in the world today. It's free on the basic tier until June 30th with no credit card required. Head on over to stackoverflow.com teams and check it out. I do find it fascinating how, for whatever reason, IDEs always remain a little bit slow, like not all of them. It just, it feels like they yeah. should get faster, but there's always like some new layer of wonderful help that they're going to provide. And it's just like, no, no, it's slow again. Yeah. And now I have a <laughs> eight core supercomputer, but no, no, no. I um, boot up my $80 million thinking machine here on the computer, on the, but now, no, no, no. Yeah. But my auto suggest um, is pink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mine shoots sparkles. <laughs> yeah. Which I quite so like. Great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, that's because I, I remember that era of like Eclipse showing right. up yeah. and and Oof. Eclipse was amazing in theory. And then in practice, like unless it just brought everything to its knees. And what's I mean, it's still you still download it and it's still like it takes a minute for Java. That startup time is really funny because it, it's sort of and actually that would really be worth talking about. Like startup time doesn't come into the conversation very often about like about engineering, but it affects everything. Like you think about those IDEs and those experiences totally. and like Eclipse was fine after it had a good 10 minutes to boot up and get the, the just in time yeah. compiler going. Cause it was all based on, on Java and ran on the Java virtual machine. But there was like a minute as, as things would get moving and you'd install a plugin that you thought would answer all your XML problems. And it was like, <laughs> no, 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 no. I can still, as I'm saying this, like that blue, text is just starting to flash in my brain. Talk a little bit about startup time, where the problems come from, and how you solve something like that or work around it. Yeah, Dino's actually doing a really good job on this. It's managed to feel quite 
naturally fast. You, you get a minor hit, but mostly from network traffic. When you are first executing a module, it's going to walk its import statements and download all those and cache them. Yeah, this, I agree. So the startup time is, is a part of your lead time to production. And, and that's a part of your iteration cadence. And so it's interesting that developers will always say that something's fast, even if it is really super actually slow if they're really enchanted by that thing. And I think the IDE thing and a lot of those sort of older runtimes, especially ones that compile steps, really have terrible lead time to production, which means you have terrible time to resolve bugs and less chances to go home at five. And this is a part of that pendulum swinging back and forth. I'm maybe being a nerd here, but I think I think there's a good chance that a whole lot of this stuff gets rewritten in Rust and Wasm compilers become the thing. And we maybe work around that for a little while longer. Well, it, it feels, I don't think that's too nerdy because what I'm, what I keep thinking is that Wasm took that virtual machine step kind of closer to the metal and, yeah. but it's still very targetable. And then Rust gives you that type safety that you used to get out of Java. You know, Java was like enterprise, but with guardrails. Yes. <laughs> now there's this new space in the middle and a runtime that's going to be ridiculously fast and also runs in browsers. So yeah, it definitely feels like we're in for a moment of everything accelerating, except no one's quite sure what. Deno is like one of those projects. Rust is another one of those projects. Probably TypeScript and Visual Studio Code are among one of those projects. Mm -hmm. There's this interesting moment, too, where our desktop is starting to slide into the web. And we're barely noticing it. Yeah. But, you know, we saw GitHub Code Spaces happen a couple of weeks ago and you know you launched that oh, which is like, a microsoft product right i mean yeah. this, like, isn't that's, that that's weird a new world <laughs> so funny yeah didn't see that one coming uh <laughs> i mean you know i think when i saw microsoft and you know microsoft drops linux on and i'm like okay this is all about cloud this is all about totally. you know sure and it's about you know they're going to compete in their microsoft way which is kind of stumble around but continue to serve giant enterprise with just you know pretty good solutions and then something like that drops and you're like no no that's what i want like that's the thing that i would have you know i've been saying no one would ever do that because that's really smart and i i think it's cool yeah and then no microsoft is just like oh yeah yeah we're cool too and it, it's just very confusing and emotionally <laughs> upsetting just about every day satya is amazing. I mean, that is talk. Yeah. That is a complete turnaround in culturally, technically, in every way. It's been unbelievable to watch. I think it's a bigger turnaround than what we saw with Apple in many ways. To get a company of that size to culturally embrace something that they vilified before, and you know, they're on stage talking about diversity and inclusion. They're one of the leaders in this whole COVID nineteen thing. It's it's very impressive. I think one of the things that's wild too is like. Clear, you know, usually the gentle, peacemaking, stable corporate leader is there to just kind of keep the wheel turning. Yeah. And then, then the stock market starts to decline and, and they bring in another monster. Yeah. But this guy is essentially this sort of gentle, stable operator, clear communicator. And then he just delivers like brutal world smashing returns to the market. I don't <laughs> know if anyone's ever seen anything like it before. It's really no. neat. Nah, they were the first to one, the first to one trillion. That's a that's a nice record yeah, to have and on just your like, shelf there. Nice trophy. He's got to be a beast at some level, right? Like, there's got to be a way where he makes fifty thousand people fly straight. But, but <laughs> well, we, we talked about this before, Paul. Remember, we had this conversation about what it used to be like to work in software and how you know the sort of brutal sociopath. Yeah. 
and you know the, the the Linus of the world was like the thing that got things done that made things work. And then slowly over time, open source and community building has proved its value again and again and again. And so he can come in and say, wait, if we pivot to this kinder, gentler, more collaborative way, maybe it'll actually pay dividends. And that's what we're seeing. It is. Yeah. I think what's weird, Microsoft sees the world in a macroeconomic way. They're so big. They're not GE. They're not no, GE. No, no, they come actually, but they kind of are. They don't play it out as much, but they are very like supply chain oriented in ways you'd never expect because they're so big. And so it's very strange because that never really, that doesn't land on the consumer very well. It tends to land as like Windows yeah. form update pack yeah. Metro UI. Yeah. And you're like, oh, shit. I guess I guess this is how I'm talking <laughs> to the database now. And, and so for them to make decisions which are actually consumer centric while still being this macroeconomic powerhouse and for it all to still feel like one thing is unprecedented in the industry. The other thing that blew my mind was their willingness to sort of own up to being wrong. So I don't think I've seen yeah. a big co say we were wrong about X. And yet I think it was The Verge yeah. a couple of days ago. It was like, Satya, we were wrong about open source. What an amazing yeah. admission. Yeah. And like CEOs don't do that usually. Like, well, he wasn't there. Co- so he wasn't, like, he wasn't actually like, he's like, we were wrong. It wasn't me, you guys, but... Yeah, <laughs> like it, it, it was, was the like other guy, his time. But, so, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it was bad. These are the people on his board and the people who put him into control, though. Like they, yeah. they have clearly. Yeah. That's true. That is a hell of a move for a fierce loyalty-driven culture yeah. to be like, nah. It feels like this was actually what IBM was trying to do, like twenty or thirty right. times in the past, and it could never, it could never get out of its own way. I think because the consulting money is so good. Um, yeah, Microsoft kneecapped them. I mean, we actually did like a testimonial with Microsoft because they're one of our biggest Teams customers. And Brian, you're totally right. Like the guy said, we tried to build this in house and it didn't work. And one of the things Satya taught us was like, it's okay to own up to mistakes and like go a different way. Like you don't have to win, claim to win every time. And I was like, whoa. I never heard somebody like an executive say that in a consumer briefing before. Yeah, that was it's weird. refreshing. It's, it's nice to see. And they're yeah. big focus on the actually living the diversity and inclusion. So they're not just saying it, but you can see it on the stage. You can see it in their executive team. You can see it in their products and how they, they talk about themselves yeah. and it's it's a very refreshing change. But Paul, don't they have less of the like moonshot building a solar, you know, internet <laughs> hand glider thing than Facebook and Google do? Don't they have less of that? That's why they buy this. I mean, they did the phone. The phone flopped. Yeah, I think also, look, the way I would frame this, first of all, Microsoft Research probably doesn't get enough credit. It is one of the premier, like, computer science-driven research organizations in the world. And people... Deep AI. That was was HoloLens. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. No, but... (laughs) But also like like type safety, like really deep fundamental stuff like they are dead serious about. And they're really like right. they hired some of the best people who have ever worked in the industry to go work on that stuff. I just think, again, like they set up their own supply chains. And, yeah, it feels like with the big bets, I don't know, there's also a sort of narcissism to the like the Facebook and the, the Google strategies where it's like we have to be everything because of this. And it feels like Microsoft is just like the middle aged dad going like, yeah, cool, man. You are having a great time at college. And later <laughs> you are going to come work with me at this company. 
<laughs> and right, uh, we're going right. to update. We're going to we're going to put machine learning into the CRM dynamics tools in order to help people right. do lead classification. I mean, they're also <laughs> you know twenty or thirty years older than those companies, so they they had their wild experimental years. Maybe uh, well, that was a back. giant terrifying monopoly that destroyed everything it <laughs> yeah, touched. They really <laughs> did. Yeah, they had. Yeah, it was just <laughs> just fire running through the forest is what they had. <laughs> Shout out to Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> Love you guys. So Brian, we're, we're, we're past time on set, but I wanted to ask you one question, which is that you're in San Francisco. I know you might be decamping for the summer, but can you just tell us a little bit about what the vibe is like in Silicon Valley and in its biggest city? And like, what has this, you know, quarantine and lockdown been like? Yeah, it's been, yeah. I think in many ways, it's actually brought a lot of the community around here together. The other day I was hanging out the back window of my apartment and so were pretty much every other apartment windows because everybody's, you know, cooped up in their apartments. And so you just want to get some air. And we were all chatting and it was kind of neat. So in a weird way, I think COVID-19 has brought people in the community a little bit closer than they've ever been before. Generally, San Franciscans observe science. So things like masks and social distancing are mostly have been observed from the beginning. And the curve has been thankfully been kept flat for the most part. I think people are just generally a little bit scared, don't know a whole lot about where this is going, and that uncertainty brings people more together than it than it pushes them apart. Yeah. At the very beginning, my Canadian family was like, you got to get out of there. It's going to go crazy. <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't think that, but I don't think that this is a, a moment of civil unrest. I think this is actually just a moment where, where we need, right. we do need to come together to protect the most vulnerable in yeah. our communities. And, and it's not just yeah. about like, me it's about like you know immediate family or neighbors or, or whomever so in for the most part good i think a lot of things that we had always wanted in san francisco are now here you can get booze delivered finally there's takeout <laughs> cocktails which is actually kind of awesome so you go for a socially distant walk and have a yeah. mai tai yeah it's devastating at the same time walk down valencia street and every one of my favorite bars and restaurants is gone and i'm not sure where when they're coming back right which yeah. stings I think the families are going nuts, if I'm going to be real honest. So everyone I know with kids feels <laughs> yeah. like they're in a prison of their own making and <laughs> doesn't know when they can get out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah, that's yeah. a real thing that's happening. I, I moved to three houses in three months in, my, in an effort to find the island of sanctuary. Yeah. So I know what that's yeah. like. Yeah, we just never leave the apartment with two eight-year-olds except for the one, the one daily outing. It's great. Yeah, but I think... <laughs> I think one thing you said is really important, which is that, yeah, I mean, it used to be that, you know, there was th- there was vast inequalities in San Francisco, as in New York, as much as anywhere yes. in the world. And in a certain way, if everybody has to be home and no restaurants are open, you know, it's a great equalizer. We're all in the same boat of uncertainty and nobody is really out there, you know, living a lavish life. We're all kind of just trying to get through this together in the in the most fundamental way. Yeah. It so, kind of dictates that you have a home, though. I think that's like something that's that... Right. Yeah. Uh, good point. Yeah, I think it's like, point. yeah, it definitely is. As long as you're like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, most of them are met. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We are hugely yeah. privileged. This is, and especially in San Francisco, this is not cheap real estate to have. This does highlight inequalities, and like, I, I love that we're calling people essential, but we're fighting over what their minimum wage is. Well, how are they essential if they're getting paid minimum wage? That doesn't seem like the right kind of compensation. If they're risking their lives to right. protect us and feed us, uh, so there's 
going to be change at the end uh, when we get through this, which we will get through this. And I think the silver lining of this pandemic is that it's really shown the cracks and in inequalities in our in our society. And we're going to have to work to address that. Mm. You know, it's been it's been really interesting watch watching. There's a lot of food and food insecurity in our neighborhood in Brooklyn, and so there's a lot of groups coming together trying to help, both from cooking and just getting money to the right places and so on. And so, obviously, everybody's using the same tools and Airtable and Zoom and, hmm. and sort of whatever. And it's been fascinating to watch how little what I would call like crisis software exists in the world like it's very hard to create an adaptive system and keep messing with it in order to to change things and there are engineers on projects i've been watching and they're bringing like classic engineering culture to a place where people just like aren't ready for that and there it's just been mm. wild to watch everyone try to impose their culture of good successful operation on a situation that may not have n anything to do with that right like like we just right. like, are we, you know, who has, literally the questions are like, who has enough flour? Or yeah. can we get the church to loan us a, a room as a food pantry? And like those, some of those are conversational, some of those are software. Those are people problems. Those are coordination They're issues. people problems. Yeah. That's right. But yeah, this is less of a like, how do we build a startup, you know, with a cold start to get to good runway or ARPU. Yeah. It's, you know, less of like, how do we build, it's, it's more of like a FEMA, like it's a disaster response management. You would need that kind of, if somebody had built software for that. And you know, what's thing. wild is there's a zillion tools for things like this, but when it comes down to it, people just use Google spreadsheets or the user yeah. table. Like they're, they're just, because uh, yeah. my, my idea is basically, I think you need to model it in your head and before you can lock in, like you can't learn the new tools because you don't really know what you're doing yet, but you know Google spreadsheets. And so like you can share those back and forth. For people who, yeah, you know, may not have access to computers or smartphones or whatever, like, is there any software that communicates with right. them to say like, if you needed flour, tell me here and I'll put it there. Like, is there any app that anybody's built? Like, how do they know, how do, how do you interact with the people who have the need and then, you know, you can provide the... Yeah, what is the app for people without smartphones? I don't understand how that works. Well, it's, in America, you can kind of count on it now, regardless, like not almost, except mm. for older and other, there's like specific communities, but even somebody who's a pretty limited means, but it's texting, right? Like people text, WhatsApp is an critical tool. And it's like, you know, the, the tech industry discourse around WhatsApp is like Facebook, privacy, security, and so on. And then like... WhatsApp is also the preferred, you know, app of the construction industry and, you know, and it lets you right. talk to your family back home. So it's like where you, you have to find that balance and sort of get people where they are. Like in the kindest, most good hearted way, a lot of people, I've seen a lot of hackathons, right? Like just, there's been a lot of hackathons scheduled and I think that's one, I think that's wonderful, but it almost seems like a square peg in a round hole, right? Like no one is looking, it's really difficult to think of like the game changing app that's going to fix everything right now. Yeah. And it yeah. It feels like there's a lot of energy and people are trying to put it towards things they're used to and things that are normal to them, but it, that doesn't always work right. in this case. Yeah. If you're going to do a 24 hour hackathon, maybe just build somebody a small, a small it's, home in that it, time. Just I get it though. You know, like if you're in the middle of this, which everyone is, there's so much uncertainty. You want to find some agency. So you just need an outlet yeah. and it feels like, oh, if I do this thing that I already know how to do, I have some control over this you know, completely. Yeah, you, have, you have this situation. hammer. It's yeah. a wonderful hammer. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, look, if nerds want to help right now, go look for like food support in your community. And then 
and don't go in expecting to lead. Just know that they probably like pr- people may need help with their email, and that could make twenty more people get fed this week. Yeah, right. So it's right. like you have to prioritize that. Is it more important for you to demonstrate your craft and mastery, or more important for you to be like, I know Outlook. <laughs> I think I'd rather write code. Actually. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So help us get connected to De- Deno. Like, where? Yes. What kind of help is the effort looking for, and how does someone get started using the tool? Well, there's so there's a lot of opportunity in this. It's a brand new runtime, and the ecosystem is young. So you go to Deno Land, and that's the main website. I built a little goofy playground at Deno.town, which you can check out if you just want to play with it in your browser. And I'd say just, you know, download it, install it, and get going. There's a really great discourse server, or, or Discord server, sorry, where there's lots of active conversation. The distributed nature of the module system is is creating a pretty wild, like, branches of ecosystem. And it's the Wild West. It's time to jump in there. I'm working currently on an AWS SDK port. There's actually a runtime compatibility layer for Node that's being currently worked on. It's pretty exciting. There's a good chance that Node programs will be compatible in the not-too-distant future. So if you want to get some commits in, it's a big project. It's looking for help, and there's plenty of JavaScript out there to copy and paste. So I uh, recommend checking that out. I'm trying to think if there's any, any other big sort of ideas and hits. I mean, there's no web framework yet, really. There's one called Oak, but no one's done any front-endy stuff with this yet. So I feel like there's a huge opportunity there. Pick and choose your favorite front-end ecosystem thing and see if you can bring that over to Deno. The community would love that. No, looking at the modules, there's a lot of them, but there's definitely a big opportunity there, it seems like. Absolutely. And if you want to try and run it, check out begin.com. We make it two clicks to run it on, on AWS Lambda. Awesome. And if people want to get in touch with you, what's the what's the best way? My name is Brian LaRue, B-R-I-A-N-L-E-R-O-U-X. And that is me on all the social medias and GitHubs and Twitters and out there in the internet. So you can find me, ping me. I'm, I'm pretty chill. I'll probably respond. Unless you're weird. <laughs> All right, very you cool. are you are pretty chill. <laughs> hey listeners, don't be weird. Don't be weird. Yeah, okay, don't be guys? weird. Oh, this person is running a small business and helping with be open nice source software. Guy. Like just yeah, come be on. chill with this guy. Yeah. <laughs> Not your usual selves is what we mean. <laughs> this is great. I now know culturally so much more about and we don't we still don't know how to pronounce it. And one day we're gonna find out. But uh, culturally, I feel like I understand this system so much better. Because I was just thinking, like, I guess it's the next JavaScript node thing. But it, it's good to understand its its goals and word fits. Especially around startup time. That's really interesting. Because that is one of those secret killers of software. Yeah. I think it's pretty addictive. The other neat thing, when you get your TypeScripts built in, you can do things like server rendering React without a compile step, which could be... Quite disruptive to the current ecosystem. All right, another podcast for another day. All right, everybody, we're going to sign off for now. As always, we do a lifeboat. This is where we thank a member of the community who was awarded the lifeboat badge. There was a question that was asked. It got down to a score of negative three. It seemed like it was consigned to the dustbin of history, but somebody came in and answered that and got it all the way up to an accepted answer score of 20 or more. So, Brian, you want to read this most recent one for us? Yeah, it's Gina Kukarstev. (laughs) I think you're right about Kukarstev. That seems right. Yeah, I just accidentally did that. 
And uh, the, the question was, find elements not in the intersection of two lists. Looks like it's a Python good question. question. Yeah, that is a good question. And I got a little shortcut. The answer here. is really beautiful. It's a, it's a nice intersection of two sets. Oh, good that looks stuff. like one of those code golf answers. It's totally a code golf answer, yeah. but it's, it's slick. I like that. All right, great. Well, thank you to Gina and uh, thank you to Brian for coming on. I think he said where people can find him. So we'll just say our goodbyes now. I'm Ben Popper, Director of Content here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. And I'm Sarah Chips, Director of Community here at Stack Overflow. And you can find me at Twitter at Sarah J. Chips. And I'm Paul Ford, co-founder of Postlate, a digital product company. Get in touch with me at F-Train on Twitter. All right. Dino, Deno, Dino. Bye.